0: In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Yeah, Chris, man, enjoy your vacation there in uh, St. Louis. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's Word. Lord Jesus, we need you this morning. We need you to come by your Spirit and to be the teacher that you are. And we need the power of your Spirit to open our eyes and our hearts to see and hear the truth of your Holy Word. Father, your wrath and our sin is very unpopular in our day. And yet, oh God, we know it's because your glory is unpopular in our day. We are exactly what you have said in this passage that we are. We are glory stealers. We, the created, think that we have the right and the privilege to tell you what you are for and what you're not for. What brings you glory and what does not bring you glory. You have made a world in which your power, your infinite attributes are so clear. It's so clear we are your dependent creatures. that We have no right to rise above you. And yet God, every single one of us, including myself, especially myself, want to do exactly that. We want to be you. We want your praise. We, we want the praise of the world. We want your glory. We want others to bow down to us. We want our will to be done. We want to discern what is true and good and right. We want to know, we want to determine what's best for us and those we love. We do not want to worship you and to bow our hearts to you and to submit to you and to obey you and to love you. We just want to question you. So God, we need your spirit. Don't show us the addiction and the blindness of our neighbor or our spouse or our children or our parents, but show us our own addictions. Show us our own sin, O God, that we might run to the righteousness of God, Jesus Christ Himself. We pray this in His name. Amen. I was doing the math this week, and I have counted 11 women in this congregation, that are pregnant right now. Unbelievable. Uh, It's a high probability that the woman you're sitting next to right now is pregnant, if you're at downtown church, or will be in the next few hours. Uh, Eleven women. My goodness. Unbelievable. So what that means is that our nursery team has just resigned. Resigned and they are running out the back of the church. Now what that means is we're going to have 10 or 11 new babies within the next few days, weeks, and months ahead. And those babies, when they're born, I think we could, we could all agree, have absolutely no right to take credit for being born. I mean, they have done nothing it would be foolish for them to be born into this world and to say, oh, look what I have done. You see, that's not even on their minds, but they are on the minds of someone, and that's their mom and their dad. Because you moms and dads are planning, you're scheming, you're googling baby beds and and, and organic baby food and prenatal vitamins and, you know, you, you're buying clothes, you're setting up the room, you're, you're anticipating, you're thinking about the future. I did the, the wedding of Mike Langley, Mike and Lisa Langley's daughter, and, and um, at the rehearsal dinner, he stood up and he said, You know, he, he had, has two sons and a daughter, and he said, When you were born, Annalisa, the first thing I thought was this day, the day I had to give you away. I mean, that's what we do as parents. We think about their lives. We decide, you know, are they going to be athletes? Are they going to be artists? Are they going to be both? How are we going to educate them? What's my role in this? How do I discipline them? How much should they sleep? How's, how's my schedule going to change? How do we need to reorient our, our family and our lives around these children? And yet they're born, and you know the first word that they learn is no. <laughs> the first attitude that they have is, I know better than you. They are not thankful hit me the other day, my stepfather turned 80 this week, and we were at dinner, and he, he started talking about his first memory in life, and he swears it's when he was two years old. And I'm like, oh, come on, there's no way. But he could tell me exactly where it was, he could tell me everything about it. But okay, let's say it was two years old. Do you understand that he doesn't remember anything before those two years? Do you know what that means? He doesn't remember his mother holding him and feeding him. He doesn't remember his mother changing him when he sold himself. He doesn't remember all the protection. He doesn't remember all that was done for him for all those years. And neither do we. And yet we as parents don't just throw the children by the wayside. We continue to pour our money and our energy and we use the power and the attributes that we have for the good of our children. And sometimes that means giving them over. Sometimes that means, okay, you want to touch that, that, that flame? I have told you time and again, you want to jump off that table? You want to touch this? You want to go there? You want to do this? Then do it. And see how it turns out. Why? Because we hate them? No, because we love them because we want them to know that what we are saying is truth and that we may know a little bit more than they know. And yet we don't get paid as parents. We just get used, <laughs> right? <laughs> they take everything from us. But what we want more than anything is just a little gratitude. Just a little every now and then. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. You've done a lot for me. I mean, that's all. Just one little gratitude. And what incurs my wrath is probably what incurs your wrath, and that is when our children act as if they didn't need us, they've never needed us, and they don't need us now. I look at my grandboys who are all cute and cuddly, man, and they can look at me and say, no. And it's not just verbiage. Their whole soul believes No. <coughs> And there's something that wants to click inside of me. Say, your mom and dad brought you into this world, but I can take you out right now. (laughs) I know I can. But I better not. I'll get in trouble. Paul tells us in these verses that this is exactly our story. This is exactly who we are. It's exactly what we are. And therefore, there's some consequences, and and, and God is doing some stuff. And this is a hard message, but it's not one that we can't relate to, and we need to hear it. This could be, I said last week, the first 16, 17 verses of Romans may be the most instrumental passage of of all of Scripture, and now I'm just going to kind of expand it out and say chapter 1 of Romans may be one of the most important chapters in all of Scripture. Because this tells us something that we need to know. And the first thing that we need to know is that I deserve wrath and you do too. Friday was my 49th birthday. And I want you to know that it's going to be my last birthday. Not because I'm planning to die, but I'm just not planning to turn 50. All right? And I've got 12 months to figure out how this is going to play out. All right? I've got 12 solid months to figure out how to keep living and not turn 50. And uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, blame it on memory every year. ninth. yep, it's my 49th birthday. Next year, the year after that, I don't know. You know, birthdays are tricky. Um, because birthdays are days that somehow we kind of sold this idea to ourselves that the birthday, your birthday is your day. All right, my birthday. And you're just kind of waiting. You're waiting to see who remembers and who doesn't. You know, Facebook. Now, one of my favorite cards I got uh, was, you know, I would have remembered your birthday even if there wasn't Facebook. I'm like, yes, now that's a friend right there. Uh, but you know, Facebook birthday's not bad, Twitter birthday's not bad. Getting a lot more shout outs, you know. Happy birthday. Little Starbucks gift card. Woohoo! And it's my birthday, you know. <laughs> birthdays do something a little dangerous to us. They do convince us that at least for a day we deserve praise. You know, it's really ridiculous. I mean, there is no telling how many moments I should have died in my life. There's no telling how many incidences and people that my God has... Save me from! I can't take credit for one breath that I've taken. I t- can't take credit for the jobs that that I've had, for the parents that I've had, for where I've lived, for what I've possessed, for what I know, for the Bible teachers and the churches that have poured into me. I can't take credit for anything. But boy, do I want to! I see myself when people come and you know they say, "Man, downtown church." Wow. You have done a great job, Richard Reeves. And man, there's something in me that acts so humble, but I feed off of it. You know, in fact, what I find and what I'm realizing about myself is I feed and I'm, I'm prideful, I feed on and I'm prideful of the fact that I'm humble. That's messed up, people. <laughs> That is messed up. And i tell you how I know it. It's when someone indicates that they think I'm arrogant. That I'm above something. You want to see me get mad? You call me arrogant. Why? Because I'm humble. (laughs) Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And yet very believable. You see, God is the reason... For any blessing or success of downtown church, it's his gospel. It's, I mean, everything is about him. Everything. He's the one that moved in all of our hearts to come here. Wasn't my idea to come and plant this church? He made me do it, and then I take credit for it. I didn't even want to come do this church. I wanted to stay in Colorado. And yet he said, "No, you're going. You're going." Some of you may be here and say, I didn't want to come to this church. I still don't want to be at this church, but here you are. He gets the glory for everything. I look back at the history of this church. I I, I think about the day that I called Rick Trotter. I think about the day that I called uh, Chris Davis. I think about the day that I called Kathleen. I think about just all these little events, all these little conversations I've had that are just happenstance. Oh man! Two days ago, I was I'm I'm, I'm available to be your worshiper. You know, all these little things that don't just happen, but God has gifted us with so many great blessings. God is the reason, and yet we don't give Him the praise that He deserves. Look at verses 18 through 23. Paul is describing children who were created and placed in a beautiful world and given a beautiful life. He's describing a people that should wake up every day and look around them and say, Wow! This has nothing to do with me. I mean, look at me. Look at my life. Look at at all the things I've been given. I mean, someone powerful. There's no way that I can take credit for the universe. I don't deserve praise and worship, but I must bow down before this God that has made all things and all things beautiful. And if you just look at the order of, of life and the order of this world. I saw a special the other night um, on, um, oh gosh, brain freeze here. Uh, what are those objects that can, came crashing into Russia from space. Come on. A what? Meteor. There we go. They're like, yeah. Thank you. Um, there are like millions and millions of these meteors, like orbiting, coming around just everywhere, and one little one comes crashing through our, our, our atmosphere and into you know this Earth, and it, you know it hurt about a thousand people in Russia. And unbelievable. Just think about that one reality. Of our existence. One little meteor makes its way through. Do you know the probability of that happening by chance? Millions and millions. And yet, earth has not been destroyed. And that was just kind of one news story on one day. Unbelievable. It is plain to us. It should be obvious to us. And although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Do you know the very essence of our sin is our unwillingness to give thanks to God? It's to live an ungrateful life. We have enough information pouring into this world and into our senses that we should know that we are small and God is big and He's loving and He's powerful and He's merciful and He's a God of order and He's a God of beauty and He's a God of, of morality. A God of grace. You can just look at creation and see that. That's what Paul is saying, and yet what do we do? We become plagiarists. You know what a plagiarist is? It's somebody who takes credit for what somebody else has done. And that's what you are, and that's what I am. You see, what we want is we want to be the center of the universe. We want people to bow down before us. We want those around us to say, oh, you're such a wonderful person. And that's the essence of our sin. Self-worship. We are so good at reducing what makes God mad to isolated sins, but it's much more than that, and yet it's something we can all relate to. What stirs God's wrath? An unwillingness to say thank you. yet we wake up in the morning and we criticize God for what He hasn't done. We don't thank Him for what He has done. And we tell Him that we deserve a whole lot better. We think that God should get in line and serve us. I deserve wrath, and you do too, but God's wrath is just. God's wrath is just. I have a friend who's a minister and his son is an addict. I became addicted to pills and my friend had to do what he's told many families, counseled many families to do, and that is turn his son over to his addiction. I mean, there's no way that, that you can really save someone who is living in addiction. They've got to see it themselves. Because they're convinced that, that the thing that's killing them is the thing that will give them life. And so you've got to give them over to it. You've got to let them taste it. And you still love them. It's the most loving thing a parent can do. It's the hardest thing you can do, and that is turn them over to their sin. And that's what God does. Because He loves us. He wants us to taste our sin so that we might taste it and come running back to Him for life. And yet, unfortunately, we see the, the depth of our sin nature. We see the reality that that we are so addicted to our own fame and our own glory and, and our own ideas that we are going to get life apart from Him. And He gives us over to it. You see, a person needs to be punished by the false things they look to for life in order to look to life elsewhere. No one has become a Christian without realizing in a moment the reality that what they once were trusting did not do it but there's one greater to trust that's what conversion is it's realizing man i've been living my life it's not you know hey i need a few changes in my life i need a little you know I need a little help over here it's realizing i need more than help i need i've been living my whole life for me i've made me the center of the universe and yet the god of glory has patiently waited and been wooing him, me to Himself through all of my life, through the blessings, through His world, certainly through the cross, which we'll get to in a minute. You see, that is what conversion is. There's a good use for the wrath of God this side of heaven. But God doesn't need a good use because it's just, even if He didn't use it for our good, Addiction, really all sin, is relational in the sense that it is a rejection of those we love. But ultimately, it's a rejection of God. Every sin that you have ever committed is relational. I mean, you, you see it in an addict's life. You, really, you you say, hey, do you realize you're choosing your drug over me? You're, you're choosing your drug over your children. You're choosing your drug over your parent. You're choosing your drug over your friend. You're choosing your drug over... That's what God says to us. Do you understand that when you gossip, that you are choosing yourself over me? You're looking for a righteousness. You're trying to make yourself feel good by degrading others and feeling bad about others so that you can have a righteousness of your own. When you sleep with this man or woman outside of marriage... When you live with them, when you, when you try to reorient the universe and you, and you know that you're doing wrong, but, but you're trying to redefine what is true, do you understand that your sin is against Me? Because I'm the one that placed you here. I'm the one that created you. I'm the one that's given you every breath you've ever taken. I'm the one that gives you rest. I'm the one that feeds you, that gives you your work, that gives you your family, that gives you everything. You're rejecting Me, God says. It's relational. Every single sin. Sin is relational. It's the wrath of God. It's not just karma. Karma is impersonal. You know, we think, okay, we've got to live right so we can kind of get the karma in line with us. No. God says, forget karma. I am angry with you. You are sinning against me when you sin. We really have a tough time with this. The Greek word that Paul uses for wrath is orge. And it's where we get our um, English word orgy from. And, you know, as an orgy is just out of control, sexual party. That's the picture of God's wrath that, that Paul is trying to get across to us. You want to know what God, what God thinks about your sin. It, there's one moment when he's out of control. It's when he is, his, his fury is stored up against our sin. We do have a tough time with this. There's nothing pleasant about it, nor should there be. You know, I, I'm amazed and it, how many people have used this exact passage to try to prove one person or one group of people more sinful than the rest of humanity. If there's anything this passage is saying, I mean, why? Look at the list of sins. If there's anything this passage is saying is there is nobody on this planet that has ever lived that deserves to judge anybody else. Because the very root of our sin is what? It is not giving thanks to God. You see, this, in this passage we see, so God gave them over. When? When they refused to give thanks. You see, homosexuality or gossip or slander, or maliciousness, or all these sins are, 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 are rooted in our, our unwillingness to bow down and give God glory. And so He gave them over. He didn't give them over because they were homosexuals. He didn't give us over because we were gossips. He gave us over because we decided in our own hearts that we were going to be the parents and He was going to be the child. You know, we have a hard time with wrath and justice unless, of course, we are the ones being sinned against. One of my good friends was a FedEx pilot, and he was flying a plane where they have three pilots. There's a pilot, a co-pilot, and an engineer. And they had just taken off from the Memphis airport, and they were delivering packages for FedEx. And they were about 20 minutes in the air when a, a jump seater, you know, they have up to two people back then, not anymore... But up to two people back then could ride on the FedEx airplane. Well, this uh, fellow pilot who had been fired, or he knew he was about to get fired, um, and apparently his whole life was in disarray, um, brought on board in a a guitar case a claw hammer. And he came into the cockpit, and he hit my friend first and and cracked his skull. And then he hit the co-pilot and cracked his skull. And by that time, the other pilot was able to get up and the fight ensued, and they all were fighting, it was a bloody mess. It was horrible, and my friend almost died, and the co-pilot almost died, and all three of their careers ended as pilots at FedEx. And I went to that trial, and I want you to know that I had no trouble wanting justice for the man that did this. Why? Because this was my friend. This was the husband of, of my friend, his wife. This was, this was a, the, the father of the children that came to our church that, that played with my children. I wanted justice, and when he got life in the federal pen with no opportunity for parole, I said, yes, justice was served. Why? Because it was personal. Do you know why we struggle with the wrath of God? Because we don't put ourselves as the villain in the story of humanity. We are the righteous ones. That's why we struggle with the wrath of God. You don't have a right to punish us, because look at us. And God says, are you serious? It's like the two-year-old standing on the hearth saying, I'm going to play with this. I am going to touch that electrical out. I know better than you. That's all we are. He is just in His judgment. Paul is putting forth this passage that he made us, that God made us for himself. And yet we have we have suppressed the truth of God in our unrighteousness. This has just hung with me all week. That we've suppressed the truth of God in our unrighteousness or with our unrighteousness. What is he talking about there? This is what he's talking about. The homosexual community... Um, Fights for, and and now many beyond the homosexual community fight for um, rights, the the right for same sex marriage, okay? And, you know, the evangelical Christian church lines up against them and, you know, pickets and boycotts and all this stuff. It's interesting to me that we isolate that one sin as as something peculiar because what, what Paul is saying in this passage is when we gossip, Every time we gossip, what we're doing is we are rallying people around us to legalize gossip. What we're doing is is we are gathering people around us to agree with us that God really doesn't know what He's talking about. Yeah, okay. No, real sin is over here. This is what real sin looks like. It's having sex outside of marriage. It's having sex with someone of the same. And God says, what? What? Who who puts you in charge of defining what real sin is? Read my Bible. If you are gossiping, you are no better than anybody. You have absolutely no platform to stand upon. Why? Because every sin that we commit is a sin that we want legalized. And we're trying to convince God that, hey, you don't really know what you're talking about because here's some sins over here that we kind of accept in the Christian church. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness, and then lastly, the wrath of God is already being revealed toward our sin. Look at how this this starts in verse eighteen. For the wrath of God is revealed. If you have an NIV, it, it, it's interpreted the wrath of God is being revealed. That's that's more accurate. and It's probably one of the few times that the NIV gets it right. Uh, and the ESV gets it wrong uh, because the, the, the Greek there is present active. It's, it's happening. It's, it's, it's something that's going on now, and, and therefore it's a little confusing. But it's not confusing at all. It says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. How is it being revealed? He tells us God gave them up three ways. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. You want to know what the, what the wrath of God feels like? The impurity in your life. Does it bring you peace? Does it bring you life? Or does it leave you empty? God gave them up, secondly, to dishonorable passions. Man, I tell you, it's hard to believe in a loving God and be a teenage boy. <laughs> I got one. You know what that means? It's hard to wait until you're married. It's It's miserable. It's hard to be a single person and, and, and believe that there's a good God. Why? Because your desires are raging. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought, to do what ought not to be done. You know it's no mistake that you go to the major universities across this world and they've given God up. Why? Because He doesn't exist? No, because God has given them over to a debased mind. See, God makes smart people, and what do we do with our smartness? What do we do with our intellect? Every intellectual community, are they praising God? Are they worshiping Him? Oh, I can't believe the smart... I I mean, I made a perfect score on my ACT. God be praised. No, me be praised. Now I deserve to tell other people what to do. I deserve to be in office and, and, and make the laws of the land. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve my wealth. I deserve this. Don't tell me. Arrogance. You see, friends, the worst thing that God can do is give us over to our passions and give us over to our minds and to give us over to the things that we want. It turns out that Garth Brooks was right. God's greatest gift sometimes is unanswered prayer. It's so true. The best thing God can do for us on many, many, many occasions is say no. Because we don't know what's right. And our our, our raging intellects and our raging passions and our raging desires are wanting things. And God says, here, go taste it. And when we do taste it, we should run to Him and not deeper into them. I read a story this week in the Denver Post about four boys... Listen, listen to this. Four young children have been taken into care and their parents arrested after they were discovered severely malnourished and living in disgusting conditions among cat feces and flies. The four boys, aged between two and six, could only communicate in grunts. Kind of like me this morning, I feel like. Uh, they were not toilet trained and they were so badly neglected it was impossible to tell which one was the oldest. the worst thing that you can do with children is give them over to their own independence. And though God has given us over, He's not given us completely over. You see, God is not like this parent. There is common grace. He, like a loving parent, continues to nurture us, continues to to bless us, continues to give us what we need And so when we're tasting the reality of our sin, what He is doing in that is He is wooing us back to Himself. For He is not just storing up wrath, He is also storing up grace for His children. You see, this text, it's so taken out of context, but it comes in between verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, so says Paul. Notice that Paul doesn't start with verses 18-32. through He starts with verses 1 through 17. And verses 16 and 17 are really the epicenter of chapter 1. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that means everybody. Because everybody in that day thought there were some special people that God loved, and He didn't really care about other people. No. The gospel is God's love and grace to everybody, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in this gospel is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you want to know how to escape the wrath that you deserve? Come under the grace of God. You see, He's not just storing up wrath for His people. He's allowing us to taste of the consequences of our sin. So that we might turn to Him and run to His grace and find life that is available For God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him, in Him, and Paul's going to tell us in in chapter 5 and following what that means to be in Christ. It means to be so identified with Christ that God the Father makes no distinction between Christ and us. You want to hear good news, you will not find it in any other message but that. Every other message says live up to the standard of God and maybe He'll condescend towards you. But the message of Christianity is superior in this way. It doesn't say live up. It says God lived down. It says He came down and lived the life you could never live so that He could give to His Father this gift of, of, of a performance that was already done so that now when God looks down He doesn't see this sin-filled pastor named Richard Reeves but He sees His Son Jesus and He smiles and He dances over me with joy in the same moment that I'm sinning against Him. Why? Because He loves sin. No, He's telling us what He thinks about sin because He already poured out His wrath on His Son Jesus Christ. He had an orgy of wrath upon His Son so that now you can have peace with God. And so now what, when you're tasting His wrath, it's really discipline. When, he's, when you're tasting His wrath of the emptiness of, of worshiping yourself and other things, it's really Him wooing you back to Him. Look at chapter two, verses four through five. We'll deal with this next week. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Oh, I could never! I could never worship a God. I could never trust a God that punished sin. Oh, dear friends, He's not just a God who, who punishes sin. He's a God who punishes sin on His Son so that you through faith can have credit and can be spared from that wrath. And so, dear friend, don't, don't stiff-arm the kindness and grace of God this morning, but go and just dive into it. And say, you know all my sin. You know that, and I know that, that your wrath ought to be unleashed on my sin. But it's not because of Christ. So praise be to Christ. Does God hate sin? Including homosexuality? Sleeping around? Yes. Is that the only sin He hates? No. There is no one righteous, no, not one. but there is a righteousness through faith. May we come to Him and may we stop being haughty and may we just rest in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for the grace that You have given to us, that You have worked up in Your own flesh. And I pray that we would come running to You this morning, that we would relish the protection of Your grace, the, the beauty of Your righteousness, that we... That you would give us faith to believe that simultaneously as we are sinners, you love us. And may that rock our world to the point that our hearts are just flimsy before you, helpless before you, falling upon you, O God. Would you save us from our unrighteousness and give us a desire for something better, namely your glory in this place, in this city, in our lives, and in this world. Oh God, You are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Would Jesus make us worshipers of You. May we repent of worshiping self. And God, would You just woo us to Yourself this morning. Fill us with Your grace and mercy. We thank You for the beauty of Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Let's respond to the beauty of the grace of Christ as we bring God's tithes and our offerings to Him. And as we contemplate His grace and mercy in light of His wrath, His hatred toward our sin. Amen.